Pastor Mike is gone today, as he told you on the video, and he asked me to, to share today. And, you know, we've been on, in the Gospel of Luke for quite a while now. It's been exciting going through this entire book. We're almost done, but have you guys enjoyed the, the Gospel of Luke so far? All of you that have been here for a while. I, I've loved it. It's been very exciting for me. Um, we're all, like I said, we're almost done. We got the, we're saving the best part for last. And what is that? The resurrection. That's right. That's coming up right around the corner. Um, and I get really excited about the resurrection. About a year ago, I had the opportunity to, to share with you um, some of the evidence, the historic evidence. Just by using the historical method, we have evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, I want you to hear that. Most people aren't aware of that. They might think, yeah, we have evidence that Jesus was a real person and that he was crucified. But no, we have more than that. We have historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's just mind-blowing when you stop to think about it. I get really excited when, uh, when I get to study and, and teach things, uh, you know, the, the evidence, the reason why Christianity is true. And, and now that I think about that, um, my passion is not only to, to know what we believe is true, that's our theology, that's our biblical theology, what we believe is true. And then I love why we know it's true, to study that, that's what we call apologetics. But then, I love to study how this truth should transform our lives. And that's sanctification. That's God transforming us to be more like him every day for the rest of eternity. I mean, how exciting is that? And if that's the stuff that is interesting to you, I want to invite you to come to my Sunday school class. We are always going through what we believe, why we know it's true, and how this truth should transform us. The Sunday school class is called Live Stronger, and it's going to start September 22nd at 9.15 a.m. Now, I'll tell you, this class was started for high school students and their parents. And so, high schoolers, if you're here today, this is your Sunday school class. And it's for your parents, too. So, parents, even if you have a, a, a son or daughter who is not wanting to come, you should come, because then you'll have things to talk to them about. Well, last year we had many college students that wanted to attend that also, so we opened the door to them too. And, and, and so college students, it's also for you. And, and actually, we had many more people that wanted to attend. In fact, I had people uh, as young as eight years old, all the way through people in their 70s. And so I don't care how old you are, if this is something that interests you, what we believe, why we know it's true, and how it should radically transform our lives, then I want to encourage you to come to my Sunday school class. It's basically a theological philosophy class, and it's called Live Stronger. Well, with all of that said, you know, one of the things we're going to touch heavily in that class is the resurrection, and we're going to look at the proof of it. But we can't talk about a resurrection before first talking about the crucifixion. After all, Jesus can't rise from the dead if he wasn't killed in the first place. Now, Luke, the author of our account, he summarizes this, and let's, let's take a look. Let's open up to Luke 23, and I'm not going to read this whole passage this morning because Mike has spent a lot of time going verse by verse through this. Well, let's start with uh, Luke 23. We'll start with verse 32. I'll read a little bit here. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. 
Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers who mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and, and, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, it, it blows my mind. It, it breaks my heart to, to realize what you did for me and for each one of us here this morning. I'm so humbled to see your amazing love and your amazing grace, what you were willing to endure on the cross. What we all deserved, <laughs> you did that for us. And Lord, I just pray this morning that we see a clearer picture of that, why you had to do that. Lord, I pray that as we contemplate this this morning, that we see just a beautiful picture of you and that we fall more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you're probably wondering why it says believe cat up here, but I'll get to that soon. Um, Pastor Mike's already covered this passage in Luke, um, going verse by verse. So a couple months ago, he asked me if I'd be interested in, in sharing today, and he told me what I would be talking about. And he said, well, yeah, I'm going to go through this, ver- uh, this, this passage verse by verse by verse, but what I want you to do, you know, as an aspiring philosopher, you know, it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm studying theology and philosophy right now, and he goes, as a philosopher, I want you to speak philosophically on this passage. I'm like, all right, and, you know, and I, I like to think that I can answer most biblical questions that are thrown my way, or theological questions rather quickly, but when he started talking about this, I realized, oh man, that's going to be tough, and and just a few weeks before that, I had a good friend of mine start asking me questions like, well, but why did Jesus have to die? Why did it have to be death? Couldn't it have just been, you know, a, a spanking or being put in time out or something? Why did he have to kill his son on a cross? I mean, that, isn't that kind of extreme? And I didn't have a good answer. I mean, I gave your stereotypical Sunday school answers, but they really didn't quite satisfy, and they didn't satisfy me either. And so when Mike asked me to speak on this, well, I, I jumped on the opportunity because it was going to give me some more time to study this and to really think about it. And the, the question that we're going to focus on this morning is, why is the cross necessary? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, before addressing that question, we need to first understand two things. Number one, we've got to understand who we are. And number two, and probably much more important, we have to understand who God is. Who is God and what makes God, God? Well, in regards to who we are, I think the Westminster Confession uh, does a good job in stating what the purpose of our life is. Now, I've tweaked it a little bit, and if you've heard me speak at all over the last couple of years, uh, I'm sure the college students and the high school students can tell you, one thing that I'm always talking about is that you have an objective purpose and life you have an objective meaning and purpose in life something that you were created for and that is to know God to love God and to enjoy a personal relationship with him for all eternity that's why you were created you have a purpose isn't it amazing to know that we know what our purpose is I mean so many people are always you know 
walking around saying, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Like it's some unanswerable question. Well, guess what? We as Christians know the answer. <laughs> it's supposed to be this, this unanswerable question. Well, no, it, we know it. We've got it. It's to know, love, and enjoy our creator for eternity. You know, atheists don't have an answer. They can't answer that question. Well, I, I should uh, restate that. Some of them do have an answer, and you know what they say. When you say, what's the, the meaning of purpose to life? And they'll say, there is no meaning or purpose to life. Dust in the wind, that's all you are. <laughs> but no, if God exists and if Jesus saved us and has revealed God to us through his atonement, then we know what our purpose in life is, and it's to love and to be loved by our Creator. So we have to understand who we are and who God is. Now, by definition, if we're going to talk about who God is, God is necessarily perfect in every way. That's what makes God God. He's necessarily perfect. There is nothing that he can do to not be perfect. There's nothing that could happen to him to stop him from being perfect. That's what we mean by God. All right, so God is necessarily perfect in every way, and he created you to enjoy a perfect love relationship with him, a perfect, holy, and pure relationship with the very essence of perfection, holiness, and purity. You were created to have a holy, pure, and perfect love relationship with perfection himself, God. But Houston, we have a problem. We have a big problem. How many of you sin? How many of you have ever sinned? Some of you aren't raising your hand, and that's a sin right there because you're lying. Okay, so we've all sinned. And as a result of the fall of man into sin and every one of your sins, now we are, as humans, anything but holy and pure. Now our problem is, is that we're guilty. We are alienated. Now we have a corrupt nature as opposed to God's holy and perfect and pure nature, you see. Now we're unequally yoked with God. You see that? God is perfection. And even if you've only ever sinned once, you're not perfect anymore. You're infection. And I'll tell you what, perfection and infection mixed together like oil and water. You were created to mix together with God in a perfect relationship. But when we sinned, we're separated. And we are oil and water with God because necessary perfection and infection do not mix. I want you to get, if you leave here with anything today, get that. Even if you've only, you might think, well, I'm a good person. And there's a lot of good, what about all those really good people out there that aren't Christians? Hey, they can be really good. They can do way more good things than bad things. But even if they've ever done one sin, they're not perfection anymore. And God is necessarily perfect. He's perfection. And even one sin makes us infection. And it's oil and water. So I want you to get that picture today. So we were created to mix with him. So if we are to mix with him again, we've got to be fixed. We need a fixer. We need a savior. If we had a savior, then instead of being guilty, we could be justified. If we had a savior, instead of being alienated, we could be adopted. 
And if we had a Savior, instead of having a corrupt nature, we could have a regenerated nature, a purified nature. You see, that's what a true Christian is. Somebody who has a, a, a regenerated or purified nature. That's what a true Christian is. Now let me make a side note. Since I'm talking about what a true Christian is, what do you think the mark of a true Christian is? Now how do we know who a true Christian is? Is it, is it somebody who's prayed the prayer? I mean, how many of you have prayed the prayer before, right? You know what, the sinner's prayer? Nobody? Okay, I've got a few hands now. I see that hand. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> all right, it, a lot of people think, hey, if you pray that prayer, you're good to go. And I'll tell you what, I've been doing ministry since 1998. I'm older than I look, I know, okay, but I've been doing ministry for a long time, and what, what breaks my heart makes me sick to my stomach a lot is, especially in my early years of ministry, all I was focused on was, hey, 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 pray this prayer with me. Pray this magic prayer. You, you chant these words, hey, you're, you got your fire insurance. You won't, you won't go to hell. You just say this prayer, you're good, man. You got heaven. And what, what I started to realize was there's a lot of people that were just, oh, all I got to do is say these words and I'm, I'm good to go. And I, I would watch them pray the prayer and I was like, yes, saved another one. And then I watch them go out and there's no discipling there or anything like that. And, and they don't change their lives. They're not living for God's glory. At least it appears to me that way. I'm not God. I don't know for sure, but it, it, that's how, what the appearance looks like to me. I'm glad I'm not the judge. But I don't think somebody that just prays the prayer is necessarily a, a Christian. Well, what is the mark of a true Christian? Is it somebody who no longer sins? You know, I guess once a year, there's this crazy guy that goes down to the UNK campus and starts yelling at kids. Like college students, you know who I'm talking about? Right? He starts yelling at, at all these college students walking around, and he's like, hey, you guys are all going to hell. Unlike me, I'm the only one that's not because I don't sin anymore. Right? And he starts just, I mean, he's just yelling at kids, going like cra just crazy. And he actually claims that he does not sin anymore. Well, man, just his attitude is sin right there. But, but if it is somebody that no longer sins, well, I'm in big trouble I hope that's not the mark of a true Christian. I don't know about you, but I know I still sin. I hate my sin. Now, I, I do think that that's a mark of a true Christian. You, it's not that you stop sinning, but you hate your sin. You hate it, and you want to fight it, and you don't want to sin anymore. Well, what about is, is believing in God and believing that Jesus is the only way to God, is that... Is that what the mark of a true Christian is? Well, this may surprise you, but not necessarily. I'm going to say no to that one, too. And maybe you're going, yeah, but Tim, what about the Bible? The Bible tells us differently. I mean, what about John 3.16? John 3.16, I mean, do you guys know John 3.16? It's a pretty famous Bible verse, right? How many of you have memorized John 3.16 at some point in your life? I see a little more hands now, okay. Let's see if we can all say it together. Those of you that know it, let, let's say it with me, all right? Everybody, here we go. On the count of three. One, two, three. For God so loved. Well, I think we had the ESV and the NIV and some other translations going on at the same time. <clears throat> but I think we got the gist of it, right? Now, the main point that I want you to focus on there 
is that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I just told you something different. I said, well, I don't think it is somebody who believes that Jesus is the only way. Well, why would you say that, Tim? Well, because of James 2.19. James 2.19 says the demons believe, and they tremble, they shudder. So what does it mean to believe? I mean, if the Bible, if John 3.16 says anyone who believes in him has eternal life, well, that's a pretty big thing to understand. So let's go over to my board here. What's it mean to believe? This is pretty important. I've got you on the screen here if you can't see my board. There's three aspects to the word believe here that I think are important and, and as far as John 3.16 is concerned. And we got cat up here for Pastor Mike because he loves cats, but um, <laughs> just spelled it wrong. All right, K, what does K stand for? The first aspect of the word believe. Well, you have to have knowledge. You have to have knowledge and an understanding of the proposition. So let's, for example, take John 14, 6. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. He draws a line in the sand and says, I'm the only way to the Father. Every other way is separation from the Father is what he's saying. So do you understand what Jesus just said? Do you understand John 14, 6? Do you understand that proposition that Jesus is the only way? Okay, you gotta have knowledge if you're first gonna believe something. Well, the second is this. Now, I spelled this wrong in the first service. See how I do now. I spelled it with a C instead of a second S. Um, assent. Do you have assent to John 14, 6, to the proposition and that means, if you ascend to something, that means do you think it's true, right? Not only do you understand what Jesus just said, but do you think that what Jesus said is true? Now, you've got to have both of those to have a saving faith, to have belief in John 3.16. You have to have knowledge of the proposition, and you have to ascend to it. But guess what? That's not enough, because the demons have that much. They know the truth. And they shudder, they tremble. And what, what keeps me up at night is to think how many people call themselves Christians today that only have those two aspects of the word believe? Now, I don't know, but I think there's a lot. And I think it's worth evaluating in our own lives. Because to have saving faith, you have to have this final one, this T. What do you think it is? Trust. Acting on the proposition. Trust is when you act on the proposition. Do you understand what Jesus said? Do you think it's true? And then are you putting your faith in Jesus and following him? Have you not just asked him to forgive you, but have you made him your leader? A lot of people want to make Jesus their forgiver. Hey, that's great, but they don't make him their leader. And to have saving faith, you have to make Jesus your forgiver and your leader. And you can't do that. You can't have saving faith unless you have trust. Do you trust Jesus? Do you follow him? Now, we'll get back to that later. Let's get back to the objective purpose of your life that I was talking about. Know, love, and enjoy your creator. You, you were created to be the bride of Christ, to be married to Christ. 
The church is called the bride of Christ. You're supposed to be the bride of Christ in a perfect, true love marriage, and you were created to love and to be loved by your creator. But now, because of sin, we're infected. Remember, oil and water don't mix, and neither do perfection and infection. They just don't mix. And since we do not mix with perfection any longer, we're necessarily separated from God. Well, see, God created us, and, and he created our hearts to be pointed to God. But now they're, since we're separated from him, they've become dysfunctional. They're sick. They're twisted because of this separation. Now in, in some just sick way, they're now curved in on themselves. Now we're, instead of God-focused, we're self-centered. We're selfish. We're sinful. We've completely missed the mark. In fact, that's what sin literally means is to miss the mark. And every one of us have missed the mark because we do it our way. Pastor Mike always says that the theme song in hell is I did it my way. That's exactly right. And when we do it our way instead of God's way, we've missed the mark. Even if you do it only once, you become infection and you don't mix with perfection. We have missed the mark, and the mark is God, but we are focused on ourselves now. You know, maybe I'm not making sense, so let me uh, try to draw a picture for you. <laughs> All right, I probably made myself look way better than I really do, but um, anyway, God created me and all of you. This is my symbol for God, the Trinity, okay? So that's God. <laughs> this is me. He created me. And each one of us, and he gave us a heart. And he designed us and our hearts to be pointed towards God, to be God-focused, to love and to be loved by him. But again, Houston, we got a problem. And sin came into the picture. And what sin does is it separates us from God. So now, erase this part. Now we can't even see God anymore. The Bible says that no one seeks God, no, not one. So left to our own devices, we don't even know God exists. We need him to reveal himself to us through special revelation, through his creation, what's called natural revelation. We can't know that God even exists unless he reveals himself to us. So since we, we don't even know he's there, we're just completely separated from him since our hearts were designed to be pointed towards something you know what happens well they're now reversed and pointed on themselves and that's sick that's sin that's being self-centered and selfish instead of being god-focused and each one of us have that problem we've completely missed the mark so we're infected but we aren't supposed to be. And God created you, and he gave you a job description. You know what it was? Be holy. It's pretty simple. Just be holy. That's your job description. It means to be God-focused, but all of us have missed the mark, and because of that, now we all have a damaged relationship. Think about that. Let that sink in a little bit. We all have a damaged relationship with our creator how many of you have ever had a damaged relationship before raise your hand if you've ever had a damaged relationship a broken relationship in some way it was good but then something happened and it became a bad broken damaged relationship 
Now, I want you to think about this. How many of you have then experienced a completely fixed relationship? It was broken, but then it became fixed or saved. How many of you have ever experienced that? Raise your hands. A lot less, but some of you have. Now, if there is to be a restored relationship, truly restored, we have to realize there's two people, at least two people involved in a broken relationship. One, somebody was hurt. Somebody was offended, okay? So we have an offended party. We also have the offending party, the one who did the damage. So we have an offended party and an offending party. And if a damaged relationship is to be restored, the offended party, the one who was hurt, must choose to bear the harm. If the offended party does not choose to bear the harm, then the offending party over here can send all the flowers they want. It's not going to do any good. They can do all the work possible. They can work every day to try to restore the relationship. But if the offended party doesn't choose to bear the harm, all of their works are as filthy rags. Does that make sense? Isaiah says that our works, our good works, are like filthy rags unto the Lord. Our works don't work. Unless the offending, or I'm sorry, the offended party chooses to bear the harm. God is the offended party. And now the offending party does have to repent and confess. The offending party does have to do that for there to be a completely restored relationship. But if the offended party doesn't choose to bear the harm, it doesn't matter how much they confess and repent. You see that? So we can't work our way to the offended party, God, unless God chooses to bear the harm. You know, there's a a great worship song, and we're going to sing it later today. But the first line is, who alone can save themselves? It's because our works don't work. Who alone can save themselves? Nobody. Now, God is life. God is life. That's what the Bible teaches. God is the author of life, the giver of life. He invented life, created it. Since he's the inventor of life, he gets to choose and, and proclaim what the objective purpose of life is, right? He sustains life. He brings it into being. He is life. John 14, 6, again, let me reference that verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, if God is life, being separated from life is what? You can tell me. Death. Being separated from life is death. If God is life, being separated from God is death. So in every aspect that you have life, you will die if you're separated from the source of life. Romans 6.23 makes this clear. It says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So, so if that's the harm, and if God as the offended party is going to bear the harm, what's he got to do? God's got to bear the harm as the offended party, and that means he has to die because the wages of sin is death. All right, so God has to die. Houston, we have a problem. 
God can't die as God. How could God die? He can't die physically. He doesn't have a body that could die. He created matter. So he doesn't have a body made of matter that could die like, like our bodies can, right? He can't die as he can't die physically. He can't die spiritually because to die spiritually means to be separated from your creator, to be separated from God. Remember, that's the oil and water. So he can't die spiritually because he can't be separated from himself. Now maybe, maybe you're like, yeah, but could like the Son or the Holy Spirit be separated from the other parts of the church? Listen, we believe in one God. This is gonna help clear things up. We believe in one God, not three, you know, people are always like, well, Tim, can you help me understand the Trinity? I'm like, sure. Um, God is one soul with three sets of cognitive faculties. You're one soul with one set of cognitive faculties. What's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, come to my Sunday school class. We'll talk about that. But um, we worship one God, and that's going to really clear things up because far too often we make the mistake of thinking, well, don't we worship three gods? No, we worship one God. God. So if God is going to bear the harm and the wages of sin is death, he has to die because the wages of sin is death. God cannot die as God, therefore God had to become human so he could bear the harm and experience death. So God had to become human. So we need Christmas. Thank God for Christmas, right? And then he had to bear the harm and he had to die. That's Good Friday. Thank God for Good Friday. And we also need Easter. We gotta have Easter too. We gotta have the resurrection. Maybe you're like, well, why do we need Easter? Why do we have to have the resurrection? Well, it took more than just executing Jesus because if death is punishment, if Christ is still dead, then he's still being punished. The resurrection is proof that God is satisfied with Jesus' with Jesus's atoning work. By the way, we have historical evidence for that. Therefore, Christianity is true. So remember, we were created for the objective purpose to love God with our entire being. Scripture's clear on this. Luke 10, 27, Matthew 22, 37. It make, you know, it says that we're supposed to love God with every aspect of our being, with every aspect of our existence, with all of our mind, soul, our body, and strength, right? When it talks about mind or soul, that's, that's talking about loving God. God with every aspect of your spiritual life. And when it talks about loving God with all of our body and strength, that's talking about loving God with every aspect of our physical life. And every aspect, in every way that you have life, you're supposed to love God with your life. But, you know, and God, the author, inventor, creator of life, gets to decide. And therefore, if we choose not to, to love God in any way that we have life, then our life is objectively broken. Therefore, we ought to be terminated. Because whenever something breaks, what do you do? You either throw it away, or you do what? What? You fix it, right? You either throw it away or you fix it. Now we have the choice, if you want to be thrown away, so to speak, or fixed, saved. Now, I'm going to start to wind things down here a bit. I want to talk just briefly a little more about who God is and what makes God God. One of my favorite 
passages of Scripture is Psalm 97. I encourage you to read it uh, maybe, maybe today or sometime this week and just meditate on Psalm 97 for a while. It's beautiful. But one of the verses in that passage says this. It says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, it's not talking about God's chair, okay? It's talking about who God is. He is the foundation of righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice find their grounding in God's essential nature and character. So, in other words, if that doesn't make sense, if God did not exist, there would not be such a thing as righteousness. If God did not exist, there would not be such a thing as goodness, or even badness for that matter, objectively speaking. If God did not exist, there would not be such a thing as justice. All we would be left with are our own personal preferences, tastes, and opinions. And those can differ from person to person. There would be no such thing as real righteousness or real justice if God did not exist but if God is perfectly good and he wouldn't be God if he wasn't then perfect justice must be a part of his nature because justice is good right do we all think that justice is good maybe you don't like it when you get a speeding ticket you know (laughs) but I think we all agree that justice is a good thing I mean, when somebody escapes justice, we know that that's a bad thing. God created the universe. And by the way, we have evidence for that. Come to my Sunday school class. But God created the universe, and part of the fabric of this universe is that it's a moral universe. So not only do we have physical, scientific, and natural laws that govern the universe, but we also have moral laws that we are obligated to obey. And and Paul says that they're written on our hearts by God but if God is perfectly good then that means he has perfect justice because justice is good and perfect justice demands a punishment or it's not justice otherwise you're turning a blind eye to sin or to crime and that is bad when we see people in authority turn their ignore sin or crime Our hearts scream out for justice. It's not good. God can't turn a blind eye to our sin and say, oh, well, boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. Those humans, they'll just be humans. Oh, well, shucks. No, that would be injustice. That would be bad because ignoring crime, ignoring sin is bad. If a criminal commits a crime, we know that he ought to be punished. We also know that the punishment must fit the crime. So, for example, if a 17-year-old shoplifts a candy bar from the gas station, we all think that, yeah, he needs to be punished. But we don't give him the death penalty, right? The, The punishment must fit the crime. However, moral monsters like Ted Bundy or Timothy McVeigh or Osama bin Laden, you know, fill in the blank with your favorite moral monster. Um... They deserve a much greater punishment than the candy bar thief. Now think about our crimes. You might not be a Ted Bundy or a Hitler, but we've all committed crimes against the very essence of morality, goodness, and justice. We've created or we've committed 
crimes and sin against perfection. So now we are infection. And again, you might say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, but you're not perfect. God is. And so you don't mix with them anymore. Even if you've only created, committed one sin, now you're oil and water with God. Infection and perfection do not mix. So now we're broken, we're infected, and we need a Savior to fix us so that we can mix and have a relationship with our Creator. What we were created for in the first place. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I close here. But this brings us to Jesus. We need a fixer. We need a savior. This brings us to the cross. You know, some have accused God the Father of some form of cosmic child abuse. You know, and they're like, well, God the Father was so angry at all these sinful humans, so he took out his wrath on his innocent son. How is that good? That's, that's cosmic child abuse is what they say. Well, that's just, it's bad theology. And I'll tell you why. Because they're confusing. They're thinking again that we're worshiping three gods instead of one. We are monotheists. We worship one God. One God with three sets of cognitive faculties, okay? Um, we worship one God. So, we can say, Jesus is God. Everybody say that with me. That's right. Jesus is God. And so, therefore, if God is the offended party, Jesus is the offended party. Are you starting to see a little glimpse of this beautiful picture? Think about it. Jesus is the offended party. Jesus satisfies his own righteous wrath, his own justice, which is good. He satisfies that for us, for me and you, so that we can know him and love him and enjoy a personal relationship with him for all eternity. That's why we were created, and because of his work, now we can do it again. Do you see how beautiful that is? The offended party, a sinless, holy, pure, and morally perfect God became human to pay our gruesome debt, to bear the harm, to satisfy his own morally perfect justice. And now we have a choice. You can either accept God's act of love on the cross or you can deal with his justice. It's up to you. Do you want perfect justice or do you want perfect love? Perfect love, that's what we call heaven. Perfect justice, that's separation from God, oil and water. And separation from God is what hell is. So because of what Jesus has done, we can now have a restored relationship with our creator. All you have to do is the offending party, is confess, repent, and follow Jesus Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your love for us. God, I want to thank you. Jesus, I want to thank you for what you have done, for how you've loved us. You chose to bear the harm on that cross. You chose to bear the harm so if we, as the offending party, confess and repent, 
and follow you, we can have a restored relationship with you for all eternity. Lord, I pray that we see why the cross was necessary and how beautiful it was. In Jesus' name, amen.